welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 212th episode, our returning guest is Frank Vogel. You first heard Frank Vogel on episode 210. Frank Vogel is the co-founder of one of the leading global organizations fighting corruption, Transparency International, and the chairman of another, the Partnership for Transparency Fund. He teaches at Georgetown University, writes regular articles on corruption for the globalist, and lectures extensively. As a former foreign correspondent for Reuters and the Times of London, Vogel reported in the 1970s on corruption. In the 1980s, as the World Bank's chief spokesman, he saw the impact of government corruption in dozens of developing countries. For 25 years, he ran a public relations firm that concentrated on international financial and economic policy. His last book was Waging War on Corruption, Inside the Movement Fighting the Abuse of Power, published by Roman and Littlefield. Frank is a former international journalist, senior World Bank official, and he owned and managed an international public relations firm for 25 years, specializing in economics and finance. His latest book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, was published November 15, 2021 by Roman and Littlefield, and his new article, Russian Oligarchs Are Finally Being Sanctioned, Why Not All the Rest, was just published by NBC News. For a link, check the show notes. And now on to the show. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Oh, hey, good. Hey, thank you so much for doing this tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, <clears throat> my great pleasure. What a terrific time to do this as well. I know. Well, you know, we, we really uh, we started the uh, threads on a lot of things that I think have uh, really continued to come to fruition over since the time we've talked, of course. Um, so I almost feel like it was like a cliffhanger and now we're like just following, following up on all the things we teased before. So <laughs> we are going over the cliff. Yeah. You can say that again. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, thought your piece was really interesting. It definitely covered a lot of things that I would, I wanted to talk to you about. So I was glad to see you, uh, you got that out there. Um, what was your, I guess, initial reactions to, the sanctions, at least from America's perspective, because I mean, there's so many facets at play with so many different players and countries going all around the world. But just starting with our response, like what when President Biden announced what he announced, how did you feel about that? I felt it was long overdue. I felt it was not sufficient. I, at the same time, was delighted to see that the US was leading in a fairly resolute way. Uh, the most important of all of the first round of sanctions related to the financial sector of Russia. Uh, this is the Achilles heel of Russia, a financial system badly managed totally controlled by the government and the whole economy is dependent on this very close-knit integrated inefficient financial system and the u.s in its first round of sanctions hit that very hard by hitting the two biggest banks in russia by hitting the access of the whole banking system to the international banking system and by hitting the ability of the central bank to draw on funds that it had deposited in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think Putin thought of that? Because I bet he didn't expect that. I think he did. Really? Uh, so you think not, he factored that into his equation? Not to contradict you, but... No, I'm, I'm just guessing. You know, President Biden had said very clearly that if Russia invades Ukraine, the US would unleash sanctions, the like of which Russia had never seen before that would do enormous damage to the economy. My guess, and this will surprise you perhaps, is that Putin probably expected even graver sanctions. Huh. And it was so interesting that when Biden arrived in Brussels on March 24, 
for a major summit at NATO and a major summit at the European Union that the US Treasury announced an enormous set of sanctions, which we need to look at as additive to the ones that were announced four weeks ago at the beginning of the war. Well, there's so much uh, to go over with the sanctions because there's so many different kinds. We've got individual oligarchs, of course. We've got the, I mean, I guess this wasn't really our doing, but the SWIFT uh, banking system has been cut off, although apparently not from in certain ways or there are certain ways around it, or maybe you could explain how that works and the significance of that. Yes, but, you know, the latest sanctions uh, cover the a very long list of defense companies in Russia. Okay. They cover 328 members of the Russian parliament, the Duma, out of 450 members. They cover, uh, they include the chief executive of Spurbank, one, the most important bank in, in Russia. And when it comes to the technical aspects of the SWIFT system, which is an international system whereby banks correspond with other banks so that they could move money from one country to the next, to another bank to the next, very, very fast, limiting the Russian access to that makes it very difficult for the Russians to obtain a lot of the foreign exchange on their exports of oil and gas and on all other aspects of trade. They can do it, they can get money through the system, it's more complicated, it's more expensive, it takes more time. It's a real nuisance. Mm. So, okay, so we've got, we've got that going, and at the same time, the oil is also on the table. We've, 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 we've unplugged ourselves from that. Um, I mean, what, how much effect does, for example, the oligarch, let's go to that uh, facet of it, because, you know, the idea is to put pressure on those around him, but we've never really done it like that before, we, like we're doing it now, and the idea is that they're supposed to pressure Putin, but he seems very isolated. I don't know, what, what's your take on that part of it? it it's very, very interesting. Uh, in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, the United States introduced sanctions on several of the oligarchs who were closest to Putin. In 2018, after the publication of the report by special counsel Robert Mueller into the investigations of Russian interference in the 2016 election, after that publication, the US Treasury introduced sanctions on a lot more of the oligarchs. But now the US, together with the European Union, together with the United Kingdom, Canada and Australia, have introduced sanctions on about 35 of the 50 most important business tycoons in Russia. And these 50, meet on roughly a quarterly basis, sometimes a little more, less than that, sometimes a bit more, with Putin. And basically, they, the deal is Putin says to them, you can carry on with your businesses. In fact, I'll make sure you get more government business to make you even wealthier. But one, you remain totally loyal to me. And two, if ever I ask any of you to do a favor for Russia, you will say yes. So some of the secret mercenary armies that, put, that Russia has are financed by oligarchs. Some of the hacking effects that have hit American business have been financed by oligarchs. Some of the interference in our last two presidential elections financed by oligarchs or requested by Putin. So when you hit these guys, as now the US and the Europeans are trying to do, you embarrass them, you make them pariahs in many countries where they previously had homes and 
ate at the finest restaurants through huge parties, no longer. You make it more difficult for many of them to do business, at least to hide their secret wealth. All of that is inconvenient. It's embarrassing. It probably makes them angry. And maybe a few of them even tell Putin, this, is, this isn't the way it should be. But are they going to tell Putin to stop the invasion? Absolutely no. Yeah. They did. He would call them disloyal. And before you know it, they'd be in prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I, th I still think it's important. And honestly, I could watch a reality show all day and night of uh, their super yachts being seized in various countries. <laughs> like that's, that, that's, that's golden footage to me right there. I love, love to see it. Um, it's one, it, you know, Rob, it's so symbolic and it's great to see mm -hmm. those mega mansions, to see these fantastic yachts. The, the American people can understand what we're talking about when we talk about mega rich tycoons close to the Kremlin when you see those pictures. Oh, absolutely. But, but there isn't nearly enough attention on the fact that it's going to be very hard to confiscate long-term those properties, those yachts, those mansions, because you have to prove that these oligarchs are criminals in court. And finding the evidence for that may be very, very difficult for European and U.S. prosecutors. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a good point. But that's um, the road. <laughs> yeah, well, no doubt, for sure. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, how this has kind of like like the like so far Europe and the the, the West is united which uh, do you do you think Putin Putin expected that like I know you said he priced in some severe sanctions but I feel like that you know I, I feel like the West have been kind of drifting apart a bit in certain ways and now it's like it's it's uh, suddenly there's a, an emergency and, and now it's like uh, kind of closer back together than it was before uh how, how do you think just generally putin did you think he calculated that because i think he thought that the internal divisions would would keep it kind of paralyzed i i i completely agree with you you know the first reactions from the british when they after biden announced sanctions the british boris johnson in the uk parliament announced sanctions and when you look closely at them, they were like, you know, as one member of parliament said, uh, shooting the Russian bear with a pea shooter. Mm. They were absolutely terribly timid uh, sanctions. And then the Germans were very hesitant to cut off the Nord Stream pipeline, which is a vital gas pipeline from Russia to Germany that was about to be launched. It's all been constructed at about $11 billion in cost, but it hadn't actually become operational. So it looked at the very beginning of the war as if the Putin thought the sanctions overall from Europe and the UK and so on were just bluff and that there wouldn't be that unity. And then when the pictures came through of the Russians absolutely destroying buildings in Mayapol and other cities with millions of refugees from UK flooding out of the country with Biden very, very tactfully, diplomatically pushing the French and the Germans and the British to do much more. The unity came together on sanctions. And I think that was a shock to Putin and so far it has held. And I think that the Biden visit to NATO, uh, which has just taken place, was very important in strengthening the unity there. And it has also shocked the international business community because that strength of unity has forced Citigroup, uh, Goldman Sachs, Siemens of Germany, Daimler-Benz, Mercedes, and many, many other companies, McDonald's, to say, okay, we've had it with doing business in Russia. And at long last, they are taking actions to serve the American public interest. And that is something we really should welcome.
Well, yeah, and I think that's so important because if one country does it and then another doesn't, then it's like it's a leaky dam. You can't really keep the water in. You know, it's going to find its way around. Uh, so you know, maybe it's still able to, but I think it's much harder when everyone's kind of moving in in lockstep like that. Um, it's essential. It's mm -hmm. this coordination is essential. If it hadn't have happened, the sanctions would have been a joke. Yeah, a hundred percent. But how are they because there's got to be ways around some of this right like like what ways are they finding around it and how can those leaks be plugged well there are there are two levels to this let me take first of all the big picture the big picture is that the russian economy may contract by maybe 30 percent this year maybe even more Wow. That means huge unemployment in Russia. And when you've got huge unemployment, you're going to have a lot of people who are very, very unhappy because they're going to blame someone. And after a time, it's going to be difficult to blame the Ukrainians and the Americans. Mm -hmm. They may start blaming their own government. So in that sense, the major impact of the sanctions, which was to cripple the Russian economy, may very well be successful. As for the sanctions on the oligarchs, first, most of them saw the sanctions coming and have been able to move a lot of their money into places that temporarily are safer. Uh, into Dubai, into bank accounts in Cyprus, into maybe even bank accounts in Malta, uh, but that means they've had to liquidate some of their profitable investments in securities and bonds and shares. And that's difficult and that's expensive. And it leaves them maybe with a lot of cash on their hands, but they've got to think what they're going to do with it next. So they may avoid detection in terms of federal prosecution here and in Europe. They may continue to hold most of their financial assets outside of Russia, but managing those assets will temporarily be more difficult. Temporarily. Right. Well, they just have to set up like a shell company, right? A lot of these people, like, because they, they're on a list and then they can't do business as that person, but then you you know, create a company and then that company buys another company and then the buy that company buys a piece of art. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not like, well, because this company isn't on the list. I don't know. <laughs> like, here you go. <laughs> but, but they've done all that. Yeah, right. And they have used the best lawyers in, on Wall Street, in Miami, mm. in London, in Zurich, to create exactly those kinds of holding companies offshore, based in the Cayman Islands, based mm -hmm. in the British Virgin. But uh, that only takes them so far. Mm. The very hard assets they have, like a yacht, like a super mansion, uh, they can claim these are owned by these holding companies. But you only have to ask, you know, the doorman at the Abramovich mansion uh, in New York, which covers four townhouses put together wow. as to who is the regular resident. And, and he'll tell you, especially if he's subpoenaed by the U.S. attorney. So the hard assets, the yachts, the private mansions, yeah, they can be seized. They can be detected. But the really big money, which is in investments through hedge funds and private equity firms, that's going to be much, much harder to get. And so the Justice Department has set up a special task force now to try and trace that money. Um, I'm skeptical whether it will be very successful. I think the oligarchs have already uh, done what is necessary to hide as much of their cash as they possibly can. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And then Abramovich, he's the one that owns Chelsea and he's selling it, right? Right. 
Yeah. So like he, but, but he's not even on the U.S. sanctions list. Right. But he sees the he can read the tea leaves like <laughs> everyone else. So he knows that he needs, like you said, to get liquid as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, absolutely. You know, um, Rob. You know, our conversation started because I'd written this book, mm-hmm. and uh, in the book I try to warn that we had to do much, much more of this kind of thing because our security is at stake and our democracy is at stake. And I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought home to a very large number of people, particularly policy people in Washington and in Europe, that indeed there is a strong link between this massive rampant kleptocracy and corruption and our security. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, despite despite my book, I don't think that was adequately clear enough mm-hmm. before this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And what, and what that may do, and now I'm doing a bit of wishful thinking, what that may do is make it possible for discussions to take place in Congress and in parliaments in Europe about the security risks of continuing to tolerate this level of global corruption. And Mm -hmm. if that happens, then we will get budgets for the Treasury and the Justice Department to enforce the law against corruption and money laundering that so far is lacking. For Mm -hmm. example, not a single dollar of additional funding has been provided to the IRS to help it in tracking down monies that are sanctioned. Mm. And the IRS is already underfunded. The, uh, there needs to be a huge budget increase in our enforcement of these laws. And maybe the realization that democracy and security are at stake, mm-hmm. if we allow corruption to continue, may be what is necessary to actually get the enforcement budgets without which all of this talk of getting the oligarchs is really going to be academic and just front page stuff for two or three days. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Yeah. It has to have some teeth. Otherwise it doesn't mean anything. So, um, but going back to the uh, oil and gas part of it, we've, we've touched on that, of course, with the Nord Stream too. Um, and uh, I had a question from a listener. I, I asked, I said I was going to be talking to you and said, hey, do you have any questions? And this was a question they had. Um, what's the consequences of Europe concerning the natural gas supply and Putin asking for payment in rubles? Is there a significant impact and what does it implicate or mean for that payment to be made in Russian currency? Well, like the rubles like cratered, right? So it's like, it's worth... What 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 percentage is a ruble of what it was like? I don't well, know. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it's gone down by two thirds or something. But yeah, something like but, that. Yeah. But, but he's but, demanding but, rubles for payment. Yeah, but it's nonsense. He hmm. wants he wants hard currency. <laughs> <laughs> he wants dollars. He, he wants does. euros. Sure. He, he he wants gold bars. And by the way, the U.S. Treasury has just uh, sanctioned trading in gold for russia as well mm. else. well but, he had a gold store that i think he was kind of counting on as his you know breaking case of emergency you know that's thing. right well the 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 latest sanction i mean the very very latest one uh almost came, almost was announced just before we started our conversation today uh is called new guidance on gold transactions okay and it blunts the central bank's ability to obtain gold and to trade in gold. Mm. But, but back to oil. The Russian economy is incredibly dependent on the export of oil and natural gas. The West European economy is incredibly dependent on Russian oil and gas. So... This is the lifeline to financing the Russian military. The Europeans cannot, in the short term, maybe long term it's going to be different, but in the short term, the Europeans can do nothing else 
if they want to avoid a depression, not just a recession, they could do nothing else but keep on buying Russian oil and gas. And somehow payments will be made, I think, in hard currencies or in a very high multiple of the ruble in order to increase the value of the ruble somehow, which is what Putin's goal is. The payments will be made by the West Europeans and the money will be used by Putin to a large extent, not to support his economy, but to support his military. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know what the costs are, but I imagine the costs every single day of his military in Ukraine are very high indeed. Mm -hmm. And he needs the cash. And don't forget, he needs the cash for one other thing. A kleptocracy exists because the guy in charge, the dictator, Mr. Putin in this case, has to pay off a lot of subordinates in order to keep their loyalty. And if the money stops flowing, then their loyalty to him may also decline. So mm -hmm. he needs that cash from the oil and gas sales. He's going to get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's probably correct. Um, but going back to the oligarchs, how do you think the oligarchs, I mean, I know you know, but I mean, when these oligarchs, a lot of them became oligarchs because when the Soviet Union fell apart, the things that were nationalized didn't just go away. They fell into private hands and they extremely benefited some people in a already centralized uh, system without competition. So it's like the, the money, to, they backed the money trucks up to their, <laughs> with the dump trucks and just filled them, you know? So, yes. I mean, that's that's basically how these oligarchs got where they are. And and yeah, we've, we've, I feel like you've got to find a way to strike back at, at their gas, well, especially. They, that, that's the way in which most of the oligarchs made their money. Mm -hmm. But there is another set of oligarchs who are people who have almost since childhood been very close to Putin mm. uh, and who Putin has put in charge of the biggest state-controlled companies in Russia. Most notably, Rosneft, the biggest oil company in Russia, mm. and Gazprom, the biggest gas natural gas company in Russia, mm. and Spurbank, the biggest bank. And these are cronies of Putin's from way back uh, and they are people he trusts tremendously and they are running the key parts of the economy that are most important to Russia and most important to Putin's power. Now each of those guys and there's maybe seven or eight of them at most are the sort of people who probably have Putin on their speed dial, who can reach him anytime and he can reach them anytime, they've all almost all been sanctioned. And uh, they are a class of their own. And in to a considerable degree, they were not the guys who initially grabbed the privatized, privatized assets. A few of them are. One of them, a man called Vladimir Potonin, who is supposedly the richest man in Russia, uh, got oil interests originally, then he got nickel interests. <clears throat> and for some reason, he hasn't been sanctioned yet. Um, I'm very surprised. But uh, the key oligarchs, the ones who go way back with Putin and who he basically made so wealthy, uh, in other words, in the last 20 years, uh, are a different breed. And they are the key loyalists that Putin is most concerned about. Mm. And they're the hardest guys for basically the West to get hold of, by the way. Does that include his violinist? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got all sorts of people, violinists, <laughs> jealous, ballet dancers and others who front for him and and therefore invest money on his behalf. And, yeah. 
when I heard that, when I heard that, I was like, I got to hear that guy play. I mean, anybody, any, any violinist worth a, a Billy, like that's got to be pretty good. Like, He's got to be a pretty good violinist. Yeah, exactly. uh, and, and, and I wish I could also find his dentist who, who apparently bought a $60 million apartment uh, in the New York Plaza uh, condos uh, some years ago. Well, that was just his dentist. So, Goodness. you know. Wow, I, I really yeah. maybe I should have been a dentist. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should have been, but maybe you should check him out. But, yeah, absolutely. No, I know. <laughs> but um, you know, I just give you one example. There are two brothers called Boris and Arkady Rottenberg. I've heard of them because they're on the UK sanctions list now, right? Yes, but they were on the US sanctions list as soon as Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. Ah, okay. And when they were in, I don't know, sixth grade or seventh grade in St. Petersburg with Putin, they were judo pals of his. Mm. And they then formed a little judo club, the three of them. These guys go way, way back with Putin. And so when Putin became president, suddenly the Rothenberg brothers developed a very big construction company, all with government contracts somehow or other and became multi-multi-billionaires. Um, that's the kind of oligarch that I'm talking about who is different to Abramovich, who is different to Deripaska and some of these other very well-known oligarchs because these well-known guys made their money, as you say, out of the privatized businesses, mostly related to oil or metals in the 90s, in the early to mid 90s, with the help of mafia, with the help of all sorts of dodgy criminal activities. But this new, this other breed, the close Putin cronies, are the ones who have the most influence and are going to be the hardest to grab hold of. Well, isn't it that Putin is like the, maybe the richest guy in the world, but it's not like it's on his under his name, but it's like he can be like, hey, give me a billion dollars to like 40 people, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of stories about that. Uh, uh, and it may very well be true, but it is also true that when you consider yourself president for life, right. And you consider the state tax revenues and the treasury as your personal piggy bank, mm. then Who's counting how much money you've got? Right. And that is the position that Putin has got himself into, or rather the position that the Russian people have allowed Putin to get himself into. And as I noted earlier, the only thing that he worries about is keeping the money flowing to pay off all of his loyalty, loyalists, his close mm -hmm. loyalists. Mm -hmm. Because if that money runs out, he has to worry about their loyalty. Mm -hmm. Well, he's got long enough uh, tables to keep him away for now, I guess. But... Yeah, he does. He <laughs> that, that's certainly true. <laughs> but <clears throat> what I've been wondering this whole time is where is China in all this? Because seems like he's bent on now that things have gone not exactly the way he planned in Ukraine. seems like he's planning on turning, at least for now, his country into a giant North Korea. When I think of North Korea, the only reason that North Korea gets to continue is because it has China as a patron. And I kind of think that's the direction he's moving in. So uh, what do you think about the China aspect of this? Because I feel like if Xi picked up the phone and told him to knock it off. I think he would. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I think one of the hardest things is to understand the mentality of a man who is totally paranoid. And True. every leader who is unchallenged and been in power for mm. 20 years and is a dictator is totally paranoid. True. And that means you can't really have a well-informed opinion about what he's thinking from one minute to the next. Fair enough, fair enough. So, but... but quite apart from that, uh, the China situation is very 
very important. And I think the best way to look at it is that Xi Jinping, who has been in power now for 10 years, faces a National Party Congress later this year, where he hopes to be basically given a new term of office and made, essentially made chairman of the party for life. It's a very difficult time for him. China has not managed to control COVID. It is under constant lockdowns in different parts of the country and, it is, and COVID is taking a heavy toll on the economy. At the same time, uh, some the biggest real estate company in China has basically gone broke. It's defaulted to, for, it's called Evergrande, it's defaulted to foreign investors and it's costing the Chinese government an enormous amount of money to bail it out. At the same time, uh, the Chinese, obviously, as the second biggest economy in the world, do not like the huge rise in the international oil price. So the Chinese got lots of domestic problems. And Xi must be very concerned about those because he's looking to his own personal political future. So the question is, does he want even more political problems and economic problems with the United States right now? And if his support for Putin is too clear cut and too open and too much in violation of Western sanctions, then I've got no doubt that the US will start imposing various trade restrictions on China and that will make things even tougher for Xi Jinping. So with those kind of calculations, one suspects that Xi is going to give moral support to Putin, maybe a little economic support, but going to be very, very careful in that respect. I think they were expecting what Putin was expecting. Like, I think they believed him when he said it was going to, you know, it was going to be in Kiev in 48 hours or whatever he was saying. Uh, and they were like, all right, just wait till after the Olympics, <laughs> just do it quick. And maybe yeah. we'll, maybe we'll do Taiwan next or something yeah. <laughs> after, well, after you get no, done. But <laughs> Yeah. You're, you're probably absolutely right. Yeah. And, and Xi is probably as surprised as Putin. Yeah. <laughs> the Russian, exactly. R Russian invasion has not gone quite according to plan. Sure. Absolutely. Like, I don't really think Xi cares one way or another about Ukraine, but I think he just wanted whatever it was going to happen to just be already done by now. <laughs> like the fact that it's like dragging out like this, it's, it's gotta be like, not, you know, Got to be giving him heartburn at this point. But, um, well, I mean, but, by, but, yeah, but, yeah, but go the on. point I'm, I'm really trying to make is mm -hmm. that for every country, domestic politics is first and foremost. Sure. And that is true of China, and especially this year with the National Congress. And, uh, you know, it's the purges continue in China. China, the leadership of China is unbelievably corrupt um, and consolidating Xi's power is a is going on behind the scenes in ways that we can only guess um, and who's up and who's down and who suddenly will be prosecuted for corruption and who won't be and who can keep his money and get it out the country and who can't these are all things that are going on behind the scenes in Beijing and that may influence the outcome of the National Party Congress uh, later this year. Definitely. Well, and China, I feel like, cares about its image more than <laughs> apparently Putin does. I don't think he cares how he looks now. <laughs> um, but uh, they, you know, China's trying to be the new superpower uh, and they're trying to like do it, you know, making deals all over the world. And, you know, this drags on further. It, it doesn't look so good. But at the same time, you know, Biden says, if uh, they give assistance to Russia, that there's going to be consequences. Well, China, that's a huge deal if there's consequences with China, right? I mean, I can't imagine what kind of, you know, real 
what do you think would happen in that case if i mean what could what could we do to china we owe, we owe them so much money <laughs> i mean what are we really going to say to them <laughs> oh there's a lot of things we can do um temporary embargoes on certain types of imports mm. we can suddenly uh end the visas of several thousand chinese who are here working in industry and business and various mm. things basically spying on the american system um we could do a lot of things that would be very annoying to the chinese uh but my guess is that nobody wants that Mm -hmm. uh, including the chinese (laughs) no doubt um i i just want to pick up on something else you just said about chinese influence in the rest of the world uh the global economic downturn that was created by covid resulted in many of the countries, particularly in Africa and Latin America, and partly in South, uh, partly in East Asia, who owe China huge amounts of money because the Chinese have lent money to all these countries in order to gain a foothold in those countries. Many of those countries cannot repay those debts right now. And this is causing a lot of friction in the relationship with China between those countries, whether they're Mozambique or Zambia or or so on. And don't forget, China is the largest official lender to Africa. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is just one more complication in the life of Mr. Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But you know, the, the thing about I've heard about just going back to the to the sanctions in general, thing I've heard about that is that you can't, it's very hard to unring that bell. So when does, when does Uh, the sanctions get lifted? And, you know, is it, do we wait until Putin's out of power? Is that like when it really goes out? Because until he's gone, I mean, he told us in his own words, what he wants, he wants the USSR back, baby, like he wants, he wants it all, you know, and and it seems like as long as he's in power, he's going to try one way or another to get that. So do we lift the sanctions? If this thing ends, he's just going to go for whatever Moldova or whatever (laughs) next. The, the, I, it's a very good question because actually we should be discussing that publicly much, much more than we are. Mm. My guess, uh, and it is just a guess, is that if indeed there is some sort of peace deal, then we will lift the sanctions on the financial sector. Not the individual sanctions on the oligarchs, but the sanctions on the major Russian banks and on SWIFT and on the central bank, which will allow the economy of Russia to recover to some degree and function better. And also make it easier, by the way, for West Europeans to pay for oil and gas. I think that would be the first major lifting of the sanctions. I don't think sanctions on a lot of the oligarchs, though, are going to be lifted for a very long time. I think the reputation of the US Justice Department and its equivalents in Europe is going to depend a bit on whether they can actually demonstrate that they can bring criminal charges against these oligarchs. If they don't, it'd be a huge embarrassment after they, you know, that they have to give the yachts back. They have to give Chelsea Football Club back. They have to give the mansions back. Mm-hmm. That I think would be a tremendous PR blow to Western governments. You can just imagine, right? Look at the front page newspapers. Um, you know, Putin gets his yacht back, which is currently in an Italian dry dock or something. I mean, it would be uh, pretty embarrassing. So I think that's the last thing that's going to happen with returning sanctions. But the actual sanctions on, on finance, possibly on energy, uh, I think will probably be lifted if indeed peace could break out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's hope, right? I mean, I mean, the thing about sanctions, and we're talking about this, so we don't have to go to war. You know, this is what we're doing instead. Right. So I, I hope it works. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, 
it's quite funny. I mean, we haven't talked about one element of sanctions that I, 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 I think it's interesting. The, uh, the US Treasury has just announced these sanctions, personal sanctions on 328 members of the Russian parliament, the Duma. Just imagine if a foreign country of importance, let's say China or Japan or Germany or Canada for that matter, was to announce sanctions on 450 members of the US Congress saying they couldn't travel to that country. They could, their kids couldn't get educated in that country. They couldn't have bank accounts in that country, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's an incredibly embarrassing blow. And I'm sure that the Russian members of parliament who were all on the take, all have secret foreign bank accounts. Probably many of them have their kids being educated at American or British universities. Um, they must be furious about this latest move. Mm -hmm. uh, whether they can bring pressure on Putin or not, I really don't know. But it's the first time the U.S. has ever done something like this. I mean, you know, sanctioning three quarters of a national parliament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's sort, of it's sort of mind boggling if you think about it. It is. Absolutely. Well, wow. Well, hey, thank you for taking all this time tonight. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I would love to have you back again sometime because obviously these <laughs> these very important issues are going to continue to be top of mind, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, Rob, Rob, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, I wrote this book, The Enablers, because I wanted to draw attention also to the people on Wall Street, the bankers, the lawyers, the auction houses, the property dealers who are aiding and abetting all of these uh, oligarchs. Mm. We need to go after them too, and we shouldn't forget that, I think, uh, is vital to our security. Well, they're so the one, you. yeah. They're Thank the you for me. Oh, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I totally agree. They're, you know, not to, <laughs> I know I was trying to wrap it up uh, there, but you brought something else up. But yes, those people are benefiting from this. They're, you know, they couldn't operate, like these oligarchs couldn't operate without these uh, people. And, and yes, they need to suffer the consequences just like everyone else. But anyway. <laughs> well, thank you. They're the enablers. Yep, absolutely. There you go. <laughs> the, yeah, there we go. the title for sure. Well, okay. hey, well, thanks so much uh, and have a good rest of your night here. Thank you very much indeed for having me and all the very best. Lovely talking to you again. Thank yes, you. Absolutely. Anytime. Come back. Okay.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.